0: Welcome to the Story Discovery Podcast. I'm your co-host, J.W. McAteer. Coming up, you'll hear a new story from our free online publication, Etched Onyx. Please join me and co-host, Melissa Collings, after the reading, when we talk with the author about their work and all things writing and otherwise. The Story Discovery Podcast is sponsored by Scrivener, the go-to app for writers of all kinds, Used every day by best selling novelists, screenwriters, nonfiction writers, and more. Think of Scrivener as the Swiss Army knife of writing apps. You can use just the parts you need, like the distraction free Writing View, or you can break out all the tools to plan, organize, research, and create your work. When you're done, you can easily export to multiple document, manuscript, and ebook formats. Our listeners get a 20% discount by using the coupon code STORYDISCOVERY at checkout. You can learn more at their website, literatureandlatte.com, or just type Scrivener into your search engine. Give Scrivener a try. You won't regret it. This podcast and all related materials are a production of Onyx Publications. All stories are copyright 2021. All rights reserved. Today's story is... The Blue Room, written by Peter Gooch and narrated by Melissa Collings. Settle in and enjoy.
1: The Blue Room by Peter Gooch In the upstairs of the old house, Alice Fagan kept a blue room where she stored the kind of wild imaginings that exceeded the confines of her ordinary life. The room was unfurnished, except for a long, low shelf where she kept the best emblems of her magic. Sometimes the space appeared to her like an attic room, a narrow rectangle with small windows at either end. Other times it felt more like the kitchen of some lorn house long uninhabited, binding the end of things. The walls were pale, celestial blue with trim so dark it seemed violet. At one end, a huge country sink pressed up against the wall, its polished white porcelain glowing like an old bone. Since his accident, Earl was unable to climb stairs, so Alice had the upper portion of the house to herself. Once Earl was up for the night, she retreated to the quiet of the blue room where she could conjure on things far away from the chattering animal that dominated downstairs. Sitting cross-legged on the broad, unfinished wooden planks, Darkened and smooth by years of footfall, she thought long and hard about the taste of apples. She pondered how it was that all the words in the dictionary weren't wide enough to get it right. She loved the northern spy variety most of all. How hard and heavy they sat in her hand, and how that first bite could make your gums curl with tartness. She loved their tough skin. Every November she'd make enough pies to get through the winter— When the pies had cooled, she'd wrap each pie in heavy white paper and freeze it in the ancient chest freezer kept in the barn. Lately, Alice was considering the jawbone of a deer she'd found in Adrian Reinhold's alfalfa field, the field that backed up to her and Earl's house. How feather-light it had become, weathered by the snow and rain. The architecture of the teeth, now loose in their sockets, ranked like a line of buttresses on a stone cathedral how the thin, convoluted walls of the interior passageways were as structurally fine and complex as anything a man could make. In the blue room, she rolled the notion of deliverance over and over on her tongue, trying to find the right combination of utterances that could set her free. Sitting bare-legged on the smooth planking, her fingers traced the grooves between the wide boards. She scanned the braille of the wood grain, the rhythms the slow beat of her heart echoing in her ears. Spreading out under the skin of her hand was a bruise, gotten recently when she cracked it against the doorjamb trying to backhand a wasp seeking entrance to the kitchen. The stain seeped over the corrugations of metatarsals, darkening to a plum-like violet at its center and fading to a sickly yellow-green at the edges. She studied the shape, trying to glean its significance. The outline reminded her of something she couldn't be sure what. She had to wait for truth to be revealed. From early on, Alice knew she wasn't meant to be a mother. The signs were everywhere, like the time when she noticed a broken bird on her porch when she was a little girl. The feathers sparkled red and iridescent green, and its little yellow beak yawed wide, revealing a pinkish tongue. The fledgling lay there squeaking up at her, its tiny eyes black and unreadable. She had to watch her own movements to keep her foot from slamming down on it, just to stop the damn chirping. The next morning, she was relieved the bird was gone. She guessed a neighbor's cat had probably taken care of it. Alice had felt a certain way when Earl came home from the hospital, same as she'd felt about that broken bird. She had to watch herself around him. To make matters worse, Earl was mean as ever, despite the fact that now he was gaunt and weak as a puppy. She knew that the trajectory of her life had altered forever when the fat nurse rolled him down the ramp, gave Alice a knowing wink, and left him parked beside Alice's yellow 1956 Thunderbird. That was two years ago. Right off the bat, as soon as she'd rolled him inside, he'd complained about the stink of her cooking, something he'd never done before his accident. He complained about her housekeeping habits and hated her favorite game shows, He cursed the snow and the cold of winter, and later, the humidity of summer. It hadn't taken long for her to get fed up with it. When he was mad, and that was most of the time, Earl would stare at her with his fierce little avian eyes and bang his fist on the arm of his chair. Damn it, damn it, damn it, he said. Worst was changing his diapers three times a day. He wasn't heavy anymore, but he was ugly in a way that naked old men are. The meat on his thighs and belly hung loose and white. What little hair he had left was a bristly black that made his pale skin look dirty. Summer afternoons, when the weather was good, she'd take to driving him around town with the top down. Once he was strapped in, she tuned into Tennessee Ernie Ford on the radio and cruised the back streets until the sun went down. And some of the neighborhoods on her route, the porch-sitters gave them a desultory wave as the yellow T-bird rolled past at fifteen miles per hour. Other neighbors, most especially those upslope of the fire station, looked askance at her, like she was towing a parade float loaded with carnival horrors. In any case, Earl was no good for anything. He'd sat in the passenger seat, smoking his Chesterfields, tossing the butts out as they progressed through the town. When the wavers waved, he gave Alice a smug glance. When the high street folks looked down their noses, he shot her a wounded, accusatory look, as if she were to blame for their mutual misfortune. "'Damn it!' he said, slapping the chrome of the door's sill. "'Damn it!' Alice knew in a way she was to blame. Night after night in the old days, she'd watched him down a pint or two of Imperial Club whiskey without uttering a word of caution. It was his habit to start off using a jelly glass, but he ended up drinking most of it straight from the bottle. Around midnight, she'd leave him asleep in the lounger and tiptoe to bed. His nighttime coma kept her safe from his pestering. That was important in those days. By rights, he should have died a dozen deaths over the ensuing years. Aside from the cigarettes and booze, he'd tried a variety of proven suicide tactics. Reckless automobiles, pills, deer hunting but he was rock dumb and fucked up his chance at a gruesome demise every single try. Now here she was, saddled with a sagging halfwit whose only virtues were a monthly pension check and a card for the VA hospital in Benton Harbor. In the winter evenings, after dinner, she'd wheel him into the TV room and turn on the news. By 11 o'clock, his head would be lolling on his chest, a thread of drool running down his chin onto his shirt collar. Whenever she was able, she retreated to the blue room. There she tended her growing menagerie of spells, each one manifested in the shape of some curious object. Summers, when the sun went down behind the silos of the cereal factory, she'd wheel Earl out into the lush, fragrant green of the alfalfa field and let the night sounds buoy them both into a blissful state of forgetfulness. Alice sat on the grass beside his chair arms clasped around her knees, listening to the peepers, cicadas, and the owls in the fence rows far away. Sometimes, Earl wanted to stay out in the alfalfa all night. He cursed her as she dutifully wheeled him back to the house, past the barn and the big propane tank, past the rusting hulk of the Alice Chalmers. His uncle left him when he died. Occasionally, he tried to latch onto the tractor or the hay rake to anchor his passage, but he had no grip left. That made him cry and curse some more. Over time, Alice had collected an assortment of bones and other oddments gathered from the field, or from the woods behind the field, or from the cornrows behind the woods. These oddments she arranged on the shelf in the blue room. The tiny corpse of a vole, an ornately marked turtle shell big as a dinner plate, the pale papery skin of a snake curled and nearly weightless. One night, in a deserted corner of the field, buried under some brush— she found a cow skull, intact, horns and all. She felt happy then, wheeling Earl through the blackness, the white skull resting meaningfully on his lap. Come fall, when she was rolling out pie dough, she heard Earl barking at her from the TV room. She ignored the sound as long as she could, but she knew he wouldn't let up until he got whatever it was he wanted. Alice didn't bother to dust the flour from her hands, She took her time walking into the room, where he banged and banged on the arm of his chair. A surge of irritation boiled up from her stomach. She absently tapped the handle of the rolling pin on the palm of her bruised hand, powdered white as a wraith's claw. A pretty woman with blonde hair filled up the TV screen. The blonde smiled at the camera and walked briskly across the stage, where she turned a panel to reveal the letter E. Cradling the rolling pin in her hands, she stood behind Earl, watching the woman on the TV. She wondered what the next letter would turn out to be. Alice was betting on a letter A to go along with the E. She felt herself deflate some when an N showed up, letting out a long breath that ended in a kind of whistle. When Earl turned his head, she gave him a hopeless shrug, ignoring the look he gave her with his beady black eyes. He smelled of feces. It wasn't yet 2 p.m., and he was already a mess. She contemplated the truck into the bathroom, hated the thought. Outfitted with an array of tubular metal grabbers, under a thin veneer of Lysol, the tiny room stank like a cesspool. The oven was turned on to the preheat setting. There were crusts she needed to get ready. Sugar and cinnamon were laid out on the kitchen counter, along with six big apples just waiting for her to core and slice them. She stood for a minute letting the whir and noise of the TV wash through her head. Feeling a tremble in the back of her calves, she tried to steady herself. To force thoughts from her mind, she tried counting the spattering of freckles dotting Earl's shiny bald head. Those brown specks reminded her of insect larvae swimming in the oatmeal they ate most every night in the wintertime. After a while, her juttering thoughts calmed, and she returned to the kitchen to finish rolling out her crusts. Earl pounded away, but she had to get her pies in the oven. Dusting the glass pie pan with flour, she cradled the bottom crust in, pressing down gently until it conformed to the shape of the thick glass. She took some satisfaction in the specks of yellow butter that dotted the dough. She was good at crusts. It was a known fact. She had been handy with the paring knife from the time she was little. Now, at the cutting board, each slice of apple mimicked the last in a succession of identical half moons. She cut around the wormholes and the worms, discarding anything that didn't fit her vision of what was right. Each pie went into the heat as an offering to something. She didn't quite know what. Once she finished coring and slicing the apples, she set them in, every slice overlapping the previous, spiraling inward toward the center like the arms of a galaxy. She salted the layers with a mixture of cinnamon and sugar and a little flour. Six stabs of yellow butter, some allspice, and finally pinched the top crust in at the edges the way her mother showed her long years before. cutting out her signature petal shapes, she made a perfect daisy in the center. When the second pie matched the first, she slipped them both tenderly into the oven and felt something like pleasure wash over her. It was her habit to reserve one slice of apple as her reward for the perfect execution of her craft. She put the thick slice into her mouth and chewed it slowly feeling the subtle resistance of the skin, the tingle of acid on her tongue, and then the elusive hint of sweetness, a thing she had craved her whole life. The quality that made Northern Spy different from the rest was that you could taste a trace of iron from the earth. The dark brown stony dirt, the round glacial stones wrapped up by tree roots, twisting through the graves of Indians with their flint arrowheads and their savagery. The Apple Books never said anything about that but it was there, on her tongue, all of that and more. She turned her hands over, examining the bulging knuckles and the blunt-ended fingers. Serviceable, that's what her mother had called them. Underneath the flower, the dark bruise stood out on the back of her right hand. It had spread alarmingly under her skin because of the blood thinner she was taking for her heart. Any more, even a hard look could cause her to bruise. She hated that. Once the kitchen had been cleaned up, She took Earl into the bathroom and cleaned him, too. The pail that held his soiled diapers needed emptying. Seemed like it always needed emptying. Trudging out to the burn barrel, Alice dumped the foul-smelling mess and poured a little gasoline on top. There was a satisfying whoosh as the residue of Earl's bowels exploded into flame. Once back inside, she sighed a deep and profound sigh as she watched her bare feet climb the stairs, one after the other, up into the stillness up to the blue room. With the door closed behind her, she shunted the cow's skull and the turtle shell into the center of the floor, along with some dead thistle heads and a few tiny blue egg fragments from a robin's nest. Holding the deer's jawbone in her lap, she listened to the tick-tock of her heart, could feel her watery blood pulsing in her throat. Tracing the shapes of the bicuspids and the molars with her fingertips, the smooth scallops of the lingual crest-like waves on the surface of a lake, She hummed a wordless song. That moment in the kitchen, when she'd washed the pie flour from her hands, she'd recognize the shape of her bruise. If you looked just right, it was unmistakable. The state of Florida. Right there. She didn't have a doubt. Its significance was clear. The signal of her deliverance had been summoned at last. In late October, gray rain fell from the Michigan skies, flattening Alice's spirits and every stalk left standing in the fields. The gullies edging the plowed land ran brown with mud, and the gloomy days made Earl insufferable. From daybreak onward, he banged the arm of his chair, ignoring the TV and his food. He sat staring through the fogged glass of the window with eyes narrowed to slits. Damn it, he said. She had to admit she agreed with him this once. Two days before Halloween, the clouds and rain cleared away, leaving a bright sun and a stiff breeze to dry things out. Alice was at the end of her wits with Earl, but she had no idea what could be done. There were still plenty of apples in the wooden bin next to the freezer in the barn. She contemplated making another batch of pies, but the prospect of baking palled With Earl stinking up the house, she sorely needed some relief. She could sell the T-Bird, but then where would she be? Her, carless, him, legless, all hope of escape drizzled away for a few dollar bills. No, there had to be another answer. An idea came to her as she was parceling yesterday's grounds into the percolator. Years back after the war, she and Earl would sometimes head west to the beaches at South Haven. In those early days, they might go in for a dip in the frigid water, but mostly they sat on the sand and watched the waves roll up onto the narrow beach, and then slip back, over and over. Alice liked the repetition of the breakers, the sameness of it. Earl smoked his cigarettes and maybe took a sip from a cold can of Strauss. When the sun went down, they'd drive back through the gloaming, past silos and sheds, paddocks and tanks. In the humid warmth, Alice left her window open so she could smell all the green smells. Alfalfa, corn, pastures of sweet grass with the shape of critters in them. One time, she recalled, Earl had his arm hung out the window of their old Plymouth, two fingers dandling the suicide knob like he fancied himself a sport running some business on the back roads. His right hand slipped off the shifter and onto her knee. He had a sly grin on his face and a Chesterfield hanging from his lip. She regarded the alien hand, clawed on her knee like some pale sea creature dredged up from the slime. Without thinking, she swatted his hand away, using more force than she'd intended. Pursing her lips together, she stared straight ahead. Earl glanced over at her, waited a beat or two, and gave her a malicious look. "'That hurt,' he said, giving her flesh a friendly squeeze. "'Not enough,' she said. "'That's for certain.' Slicking on his teeth, he looked out the window into the night. I'd best get you back to the house. And so he did. As always, Alice baked her pies. Now she looked out at the clearing sky, the crispness of the light lending the red hay rake and his uncle's tractor, sharpening the edges of all that was worn, rusted, and bent. She took in a lungful of air, and then another. Finally, she savored the piquant taste of resolve. She'd drive Earl over to Lake Michigan. It would do them both some good. She rifled through the boxes in the back bedroom until she came upon an old surplus snorkel parka, its hood rimmed with wolf fur. She held it to her face. The lining smelled of stale sweat, tobacco smoke, and mold. The scent of years past. She dragged the heavy coat downstairs, along with a woman's dress coat in an optimistic shade of blue she'd picked out years before at a thrift shop in Kalamazoo. The wool coat had been tied on her the day she bought it, but now she was thin enough that there was room left over for a sweater. In the barn, she picked out two of her pies from the freezer. They might need some time heating up in the oven before they were ready, but she figured that would be an hour well spent. God knew how long it would take her to wrestle Earl into the parka. When both the pies and Earl were ready, she hauled him out to the Thunderbird and ladled him in. He looked good, bundled with the hood up and drawn tight around his face. She found a pair of Costco sunglasses, the ornate plastic frames and otherworldly red, and fit them to his face. He appeared to enjoy the coziness of his situation, and gave her a smug glance from behind the mirrored lenses. Collapsing his chair, she loaded it into the trunk, along with her pie-making tools, a box of the best apples, two pies still warm from the oven, and a silver hand mirror her mother had given her when she had turned twelve. It was the last gift she'd ever gotten from anyone." Unlatching the tea birds cloth top, she folded it down behind the seats. We're quite the pair, you and me, she said to Earl, tying a scarf over her hair against the wind and climbing in. When the engine came to life, Alice sat still, taking in the burbling sounds of the twin exhausts. She tapped the accelerator and felt the vibration rumble up through the leather seat. The car's eagerness to be gone matched her own. Rolling out slowly, they passed the Alice Chalmers, the old hay rake, and the two weeping willows that flanked the driveway. Once on the hardtop, she looked over her shoulder at the old place, with its sway-back, tumble-down porch, and its ratty, overgrown yard. Heading them west, she stuck to the back roads where she could travel at her own speed. These were the same roads they'd driven down in the early years, roads as familiar as the veins on the back of her hand, those same mysterious veins that, in their bursting, revealed her destination and set her on this path. Mid-afternoon, they found the turnoff to the lakeshore. Relying on her memory, Alice drove until she spotted a hidden two-track that led through the scrub to a grassy ramp overlooking a narrow stretch of sand, flattened smooth by the week's rain. Edging the T-bird as close as she could to the drop-off, she set the emergency brake and turned off the engine. Out over Lake Michigan, a gray line of low-bellied clouds obscured the horizon. The seagrass bent inward toward the shore by a gusting wind. They sat for a while, admiring the bleakness of the view, breathing in air laden with dampness. After a while, she opened the trunk and retrieved one of the pies she'd wrapped in waxed paper. Back in the driver's seat, she removed the wrapping, letting the residual heat from the oven warm her fingers. With a paring knife she kept in her coat pocket, she scored the pie and dug out a piece for Earl, breaking off a sticky corner and placing it delicately in his mouth. His hands still worked fine, but somehow she liked the idea of feeding him. It seemed a motherly gesture— between mouthfuls, he gave her wondering looks. When he'd finished the first piece, she fed him another, taking her time, wiping the flakes of her butter-rich crust from the bristles on his chin. From the snugness of the tea bird's cockpit, they watched the approach of the cloud bank, still a ways out over the lake. Alice dusted the remaining crumbs from Earl's parka, thinking how sporty he looked in his mirrored shades and fur-rimmed hood. Giving his hand a friendly pat, she got out and levered his chair from the trunk. It took a while to set it up and hoist him into it, but she managed. Once he was in the chair, she had no idea how to get him down the sharp incline that led to the beach. He wasn't heavy anymore, but the thin rubber tires on the wheelchair settled into the deep sand, making him hard to budge. Finally, tilting him back until his torso was nearly horizontal, she eased him over the edge. Digging in her heel, she wrestled him down onto the flat inch by inch. Once at the bottom, it took her a few minutes to catch her breath. When she was no longer winded, she rolled him 20 yards to the shingle where waves had deposited pebble-side stones of all colors. Ten feet from the water's edge, she set the brake on the chair and walked around to the front where Earl could see her. I'm going to take a walk down the shore, she said against the rising wind. You sit. Earl looked up at her through silver lenses. He moved his lips a little. She looked away and began walking south. The wind blew harder now, tugging at her headscarf. There were no tracks on this stretch, just the smooth, flat sand, uniformly packed by earlier storms. The gentle, rolling waves that had greeted them when they arrived had turned to whitecaps frothing their way to shore. Her heads gleamed white and pure in the fading light. She looked back over her shoulder at her own tracks, each one crisp and perfect. In the pocket of her coat, she carried a big slice of pie in waxed paper. After she'd walked a few hundred yards, she dug the pie out, "'unwrapped it, and took a bite. "'The sugar and cinnamon, the salt of the buttery crust, "'the tart apples in their immaculate layers, "'made her feel content. "'She breathed in the damp air of the lake, "'the moisture-laden wind, "'the scent of every creature swimming and crawling "'beneath the scalloped water, "'the boiling clouds that would surely bring more rain. "'She ate as she walked, leaning against the wind, "'thinking about her room with its celestial blue walls, "'the white porcelain sink glowing like a moon.' Remembering the smooth boards on the floor, Alice wondered if she had read the signs correctly. She walked on, ruminating. A line of brown sand built up on the welts of her tennis shoes. A wave splashed over her feet, soaking her shoes. She looked down, surprised. Without her noticing, the lake had shifted its character. Row after row of breakers raced toward her. She'd walked for a long time. When she turned to look back, Earl, the wheelchair, and the T-bird were lost to sight. The wind tore at the hem of her coat. Spray filled the air, stung her cheeks. She might have been walking for a mile, for an hour. Out here, she figured, time was unreckonable. Minutes, seconds, years, and hours ricocheted here and there until meaning dissipated to nothing or was unexpectedly revealed. Alice stood for a while listening to the coursing blood in her ears, the whistling wind, the waves crashing, She searched the pockets of her coat, hoping for a stray crumb of pie, but there was none. Bending down, she picked up a black pebble, slipped it between her lips, rolled it on her tongue, trying to remember, to imagine, the unnameable taste of apples. Rapidly disappearing with every breaking wave were the labored tracks where some creature had dragged itself into the water. She scanned the tortured surface, the white crests, the blowing foam. For a moment, she imagined a slick, gray-black hump rising out of the wet, then subsiding without a trace. She waited. Nothing. A white feather blew past her feet. She tried to pin it under her tennis shoe. Gone. On a shelf of sand above the beach, the yellow thunderbird shone like a beacon
0: against the storm clouds. You've just listened to The Blue Room written by Peter Gooch and we have Peter on the show as usual to talk about the piece and writing and life in general so welcome to the show
2: Peter. Thank you very much pleasure to be here thank you for inviting me.
0: Happy to have you on and of course we also have our co-host Melissa the amazing voice behind the story so (laughs) Melissa welcome. Thank you hello hello. (laughs) All right Peter one of the first things we do when we start off the show is just have you tell us a little bit about yourself.
2: Sure. Um, I think that's probably going to be the hardest question you're asking me. Um, uh, Born and bred in the Midwest, um, third-generation academic. Uh, So I grew up um, pretty much on central campus at the University of Michigan. My high school was a laboratory school. Uh, Quotes on that, air quotes on that. Um, And so essentially I spent my early days... Um, down uh, on campus at U of M. Uh, My father was a professor there for 42 years. Mm, Wow. Um, He taught advertising design and other aspects of uh, visual communication. So uh, my mother was a first grade teacher, so kind of the product of uh, some kind of uh, educational theory. I didn't say (laughs) weird, but (laughs) incorrect. Right. All of my high school teachers, uh, for good or ill, were uh, faculty on, in the School of Education. Oh. They, they tested everything.
0: Yeah, sure. Little guinea pigs for the school kids.
2: So I've been well tested. I haven't been approved yet. but I've been <laughs> tested. <laughs> Well tested. I like that. Great. And then what else? What did you do after that? Uh, I uh, kicked around for a while uh, after. Well, I spent 11 years as an undergrad. Um, switching majors, uh, being a casual student. Mm -hmm. I took a degree in fine art, a BFA in fine art, and a a degree in English Mm -hmm. um, during that time. And then afterwards, I um, went to graduate school at Western Michigan um, for painting. Mm -hmm. Uh, And during those years, I was fortunate enough to be allowed to work with the creative writing program, which at that time had three very young, energetic, uh, and capable professors. Uh, Stuart Dybeck, who later moved on to Northwestern University. Uh, Jamie mm-hmm. Gordon, who won the National Book Award in 2012. Okay. Uh, and Arnold Johnston, who, uh, a Detroit boy, who was kind of my mentor, who just published a, a book in the last couple of months called Swept Away. It's kind of a an academic uh, mystery slash farce. Hmm.
0: Okay, sounds interesting.
2: Yeah, the the whole process for me, while uh, I was working very hard and very long hours in painting, so it was a nice break, and I don't mean in terms of less work, but it was a nice break to switch over from the concerns that any graduate painter might have to things that were... A little bit more manageable because they were a little bit more peripheral. Does that make any sense at all? Not really. They were okay. (laughs) Well, that's going to be the norm, I'm I'm afraid. Um, Yeah, the 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 painting efforts were um, profound, uh, incredibly helpful. But I but I was utterly focused to the point of exhaustion on On your painting. Paint. Okay. Hmm. And so being allowed to work with the MFA Creative Writers, which didn't, by the way, have a, less of a workload, but mm-hmm. because there wasn't um, a great deal of pressure directly on my shoulders in that. At that time, they called that experience a cognate. In other words, a- academic activity outside of your major. So it would be okay. a, kind of, a kind of elective. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was extraordinarily... Um, fortunate to work with the writer Jamie Gordon uh, originally from Brown University a Bunting fellow at at Radcliffe Uh, and I learned many things from Jamie but uh, one of the biggest lessons I took away was how scrupulous she was in her attention to detail in student work Hmm. so I would submit 10 pages of written work desperately flawed and she would return to me five handwritten pages <laughs> wow. uh, in the tiniest of writing, wow. um, going through every line, every thought, every character, et cetera, et cetera. And I was—that is was amazing. Just, yeah, I was pretty blown away. And, and Jamie is a brilliant, brilliant woman. Um, so I was very, very lucky to come into contact with her, uh, with Stuart Dybeck, and with Arnie Johnston.
0: Great,
1: great. So I'm curious, so you, you taught painting, and you went to school to paint. And to, to do that. To do, do that form of art, right? But so you had um, the words, the writing. <laughs> you had writing um, in, in, at the very start of your career as well, or the start of your learning process.
2: Well, early on, yes. And I had actually, the way I got into the writing program at Western, I had, before I went to graduate school, I had written a novel. Oh, okay. A desperately, desperately bad novel.
1: I think that's how uh, every author starts <laughs> first out. One they always write a is, desperately right. bad novel. And they uh, think it's great at first, and then you have to be told, no, this is desperately
2: bad. <laughs> well, I, I, by the time I got to grad school, I was under no illusions about its quality. But one of the things that Arnie Johnston mentioned when I went to talk to him to apply for admission Uh, was uh, in his office, students would often come in and they would say, I've got a great idea for a novel. Let me tell you about it. And Arnie Mm. would look at them and say, don't tell me, show me. And I was able to come in with a a wretched envelope filled with uh, typewritten sheets and so forth. And even though it was all bad, at least I demonstrated that I was willing to, to put in the work to to write the novel. So uh, that was the beginning of um, a couple of very strong and uh, lifelong friendships. Well,
0: nice. That's great, that's terrific. Well, so tell us about this story a little bit. It, um, it has a rather dark theme that you don't pick up on right away, but it's definitely there. <clears throat> um, is there anything that inspired you to write this story in particular?
2: Um, l- let me answer that by saying number one, I think that the question is quite fair and it's not the first. It's not the first time that publishers or editors have mentioned that to me. Uh, I, I I think it's a failed proposition to think that the artist has a lot of answers to their own aesthetic and their own creative process. But I like that. Um, but I, let me respond by saying, if I were to, and you didn't ask me to, but if I were to free associate words connected to the blue room the first one that would come to mind i think would be incantation Hmm. Incantation. other words that come along would be uh, ritual Mm -hmm. uh, offering and sacrifice
1: wow those are bold words
2: yes so i mean those are words that are normally associated with sympathetic magic um but I think what what we see in the blue room, at least in in one of the the stratas, uh, we see a kind of practice of sympathetic magic by Alice.
0: Hmm. Okay.
2: So the darkness. I'm not sure that I, that I'm aware of the darkness, but mm-hmm. I think you're quite right that it must be there because you and others have um, mentioned it.
0: Well, there's an undertone of violence Mm -hmm. it's not described in any way but uh to me anyway that's so that's what i would probably interpret as the darkness and um the magical aspect of it is interesting and i'd like to hear more about why you put that in there or what what is sympathetic magic to you yeah that's
1: what i was going to ask too and (laughs) i i feel that i feel that dark undertone as well i agree
2: So sympathetic magic is actually kind of a neutral term. And the simplest way I can describe it is if you think of the cave paintings in Lascaux. And one of the theories is that primitive hunters would throw their their spears at a painting of a bison. And that would give them luck in the hunt.
1: Ah. So
2: that would be a kind of sympathetic magic. I think what Alice does Hmm. quite unconsciously is she offers up herself, as seen in the pies, the care with Mm -hmm. which she deals with her pies and so forth, Mm -hmm. um, in an attempt to change the direction of her trajectory, her personal trajectory.
1: So she's putting her her life efforts kind of into, for example here, the pie, her efforts. Mm -hmm. She's putting herself into the pies instead of where an other aspect of her life that it might, where she might go. Am I making sense? I feel like I'm rambling, but I think I see what you're
2: saying. Well, uh, the pies are clearly important to her, as are apples, both uh, elements of the natural world. And the care that she devotes to the pies, uh, I, I, I think I tried to inject a sort of ritual feel. To the making of the yeah. pies, the careful mm-hmm. slicing, etc., mm-hmm. etc. Cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, and I think I think the prim, Alice's motivation is introduced fairly early on, where she talks about not being cut out to be a mom,
0: yeah, or
2: a mother, and her desire for liberation when she goes up into the blue room.
0: Right. Mm, interesting. Yeah. It is. Well,
2: but what do I know? <laughs> yeah. Right. Right. <laughs>
0: Well, speaking about pies, I think your writing about food was really delicious. And, you know, that's not a skill that a lot of writers have or have worked on. Uh, I just thought the way you describe the taste of the apple, you know, and you describe, if I remember, you know, the Indians and the soil. And it's just, it was, I loved it. Do you write about food a lot? I guess would be my first question. And then do you have any techniques for writing about food or... Tell us a bit about that.
2: Okay, well, first of all, thank you for the compliment. <laughs> I appreciate it. Um, and there's a, there's a word that's overused these days. That's issue. But the um, topic of apples has been something that's uh, constant in my life. Both of my parents <clears> came from uh, farming slash education stock in um, south uh, southwest Michigan. Uh, both grew up on farms. Um the post-war talk that I was privy to as a child, a lot of it had to do with growing things and making things that you, you know, from that which you grew. Mm-hmm. Um, and so throughout my life, yeah, I've been kind of a fan of apples, and particularly the, the what they now call the heirloom type apple. Um, mm. Spies are are pretty rare these days because they're very very sour. They're very big. They're good for pies but they're not really great eating apples, but they're the kind of eating apple that poor farmers after World War II in the Midwest might have access to. More so than, say, a delicious or something like
0: that. Right, right.
2: I love that.
1: It's a a complicated explanation for this. It's neat that such a small thing, As in, it has a background. The apple has a background in the story just as the way you describe the apple goes into depth. And I'll tell you, with those pies, beautiful, but it's also a double-edged sword here because for the past six weeks, I haven't had any sugar. I'm doing an elimination (laughs) diet, haven't had any sugar.
2: I read your story. I want a pie. (laughs) Well, first of all, my sympathies for going without sugar. Um, in terms of going back to JW's question, in terms of writing about food, it's not something that I that I focus on, but it's something it it is a way I think that one can affect and connect with the reader, since we all eat. Absolutely. Now doesn't we yeah. don't necessarily like the same things and so forth, but it's something that's a you know a basic human activity. And so most of my work will include. Something about food, yeah, and you know, I, I never thought about it, it just happens.
0: Great, well, so uh, then are you a discovery writer, meaning you don't plot it all out, or do you plot it all out and then write it, or do you just let it flow?
2: Oh, good question, Th- uh, thank you for that, because that's an issue, if, if having taught painting to undergrads for close to 30 years, the issue of intent and occurrence crops up quite frequently. I, I'm a strong believer that crea- that the creative act is an act of investigation.
0: Hmm, I like words, that.
2: You're finding stuff out. Mm-hmm. What, what are you finding out? Well, you're, you might be finding out something about a topic, or you might be finding out something about anatomy if you're a figure painter. But mostly I think you're finding out about yourself. And so hmm. yet my answer to, to your question is, I, I believe painting and writing is an act of investigation. I have no idea where a story is going when it starts. None whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe a, a rough, almost echo location. Uh yeah. Like if you stray from from uh, your target or whatever it might be, then you kind of are, are swung back uh, towards your goal. But other than that, uh, nothing is plotted out, nothing is thought out at all. It's a dumb way, perhaps, to, to make art it is the way that my painting heroes were uh, brought up, hmm. uh, and that would be people like Motherwell, Frank Stella, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, the the second uh, iteration of abstract expressionism, and if art exists, forgive me. I, I, <laughs> okay, I where are we going? <laughs> Before I say it, but <laughs> All right. if Art exists at the intersection of the conscious and the unconscious. And I think it does. Then one has to be receptive to intimations of the unconscious when one is working consciously in writing. And being receptive means perhaps changing direction, perhaps changing the language that you want to use, perhaps just leaning back and saying, oh, Hmm. I never thought of that. So yeah, my the way I work is probably really old-fashioned, and certainly the the, the people that teach craft would probably cringe to hear me say that. <laughs> um, but what works for me what works for me is simply finding a starting point, following the thread wherever it might lead, and then in a, a process of ceaseless revision, yeah. finding out what's really going on. Did that make, did that make any sense at all?
1: It does. I love how you describe that that art as the the intersection of. What say that again? The conscious the inter- and the unconscious. The unconscious right. and and the right. conscious. I think that is so excellent because oh, it thanks. because it's so true. I love to paint myself, and I think when when I'm painting, there's a part where I have to turn off my overactive mind and let my hands. I, that's how I say it. I always I let my Absolutely. hands do the work. And that makes me, the way you've described that, makes me think of of painting. And sometimes writing, too, because it is that way.
2: Very good. Yeah, and I agree entirely. And uh, when teaching uh, undergraduates to paint, I tell them to turn off their brain. Yes. A good dancer doesn't have to count the steps. You have to internalize the process. Uh, And and you, you have to pay attention, but not in necessarily a clinical way. Yes. Simply pay attention to to what's in front of you. And um, I think writing, hmm, I don't really have an awful lot of cogent thoughts about writing, but I think that, <laughs> that sometimes one can be lucky and fall into a state where things work out. Um, and it's almost a state of grace in a way. And certainly in painting that exists when you shut down the conscious mind and simply yeah. react as, as a physical being and so on. Um, I think that that writers, I, uh, I don't want to do a moral imperative here. <laughs> as a writer, I cherish those rare moments where things converge, characters mm-hmm. reveal themselves, voices yeah. emerge, et cetera, et cetera. Um, for none of it do I take any credit um, mm-hmm. it just seems to happen that's all.
0: yeah, Melissa and I are both really enjoy Stephen King in his book <laughs> on writing. He talks about the muse, yeah, he just basically said he 's the conduit, yeah, it's just a, he just sits down and then it comes out, so it's fascinating your Your answer is a lot similar to that
2: uh, the, yeah the the muse both in in concept and hopefully, occasionally, in reality, is a familiar companion. My, I'm working on a, a novella right now that is literally about a muse. Mm, cool. Not necessarily a nice muse. Right, but they're not always nice. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, but anyway, it's, yeah, so the, the idea of, of the muse can be slanted politically if one wishes. Um, hmm. But as a painter, I, I personally don't wish to do that. But as a painter, I know that sometimes things happen that you're just not really lucky enough to have happen. So some there's some intercession somewhere yeah. along the line. Mm-hmm. Okay, Interesting. I, um, I don't want to get in too deep water right now. <laughs>
0: <laughs> no worries. Well, um, so I'm gonna stop, let you go next, but I just want so you said that you, it's an act of discovery, writing is an act of discovery, and you learn about yourself when you write. So. What did you learn about yourself when you wrote this piece?
2: Well, the learning about the self, I think, is definitely true. I think many, many people would, would be, reveal different takes on that idea. Uh, for me, it has to do with language. And, mm. and also, for me, language in literature is a kind of, and here I'm being a little bit redundant, it's a kind of incantation. So in painting, I seek to produce work that is most devoid of words. But in writing, the words are obviously critical, and the organization of the words and certainly the connotative meaning of the words are, are in every sentence in every paragraph is absolutely and utterly critical. So. I look at language as a kind of um, recitation to arrive, hopefully, at an aesthetically interesting end. You can cut that off if you want. <laughs>
0: <laughs> interesting. Okay, all right. So you learned that you like incantations? <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just kidding.
1: <laughs> you said that you... Seek to produce paintings that are devoid of words. That kind of makes me, I've been thinking about what you paint, number one, Mm -hmm. and what your subject choice is, what kind of paintings do you paint, and how you think that influences, if you think at all, your writing and how you describe, say, back to the fruit we were talking about. Mm -hmm. Does what you paint and how you're able to describe, or how you would paint, say, a piece of fruit, does that help you to describe your piece of fruit on the page?
2: Um, I think the simple answer is yes. Um, my painting career uh, lasted a long time. Yeah. And so I don't, I never counted the number of works that there are probably 500 to 600 major works um, that I produced over the course of some years. Wow. Um, the, the, Overt subject matter, I think, has, has I, I, I paint through long, long, long series, which is something okay. that one learns from the uh, painting of the 60s and 70s. Um, and so I take tiny, tiny steps. It looks like I'm painting the same thing over and over again. But for me, it's a process, as I mentioned, of investigation. I haven't uh, been writing seriously, and I'm not even sure that I write seriously now, but I certainly have been paying attention to writing as long as I have painting. Mm-hmm. So, um, just as I think, and this is arguable, there's no doubt about it, um, just as the best orchestral music doesn't require lyrics, mm-hmm. so I think the best abstract art doesn't require subject matter, or recognizable subject matter, or subject matter that is terrifically realistic. Now has coming from a very, very narrow wavelength. Okay, <laughs> that's just... I mean, because art has moved on from, from those thoughts. But I'm always reminded of Robert Motherwell's uh, description of abstraction, which is... And I think I can still quote it, but don't hold me to it. Um, <laughs> ma- make no mistake, abstract painting is an act of mysticism. Mm. So uh, that's... I have... Um, embraced that, if not always fulfilled that, I think, for a good bit of my career. Interesting.
0: Yeah, you are a very philosophical writer. Yes. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's terrific. I'm really enjoying it. You know, you're taking us um, deeper into mysticism and everything else. It's fascinating.
2: It really is. You know, the problem with that, JW, frankly, is that having um, luckily had to declaim in front of students for 30 years these questions always come up and so Mm -hmm. one one discovers one's honest hopefully and personal response to them Uh, because they're they're act they're those questions are generated always in the studio so Mm -hmm. um, i'm not sure that i'm philosophical so much as I I was in a position where I needed to have a reasonable answer (laughs) and one one that I could get to fairly quickly.
1: (laughs) So you're very rehearsed.
2: (laughs) 30 years.
0: Well, back to writing a bit. So do you have a genre, a genre that you like to read and write about?
2: That's another fair question. And and actually, if I ponder an answer to that, uh, I'm pretty much an omnivore. When it comes to reading, I will say that compared to my earlier days, I think the vo- the volume of books that I uh, am able to consume is somewhat less. Um, sure. But certainly, I historical fiction, science fiction, fantasy. Um, I've I've read mysteries. I actually have friends who write mysteries, um, and so so I'm pretty omnivorous. What I focus on now, in hindsight, um, what I what I seem to focus on now is that that broad and rather general category of literary fiction, um, mm-hmm. but that you know that Im- that embraces an awful lot of writing. Um, mm, sure. And I just finished Donna Tartt's um, *The Secret History* a, a couple of weeks ago, and I'm I'm currently rereading. Damage by um, Josephine Hart, uh, who was happened to be married to Sachi, the gallery owner in London. And I'm looking at I'm looking at Josephine Hart almost exclusively for her chapter structure. Hmm. Um, she wrote Damage, which was her first bestseller, um, in a in a sequence of related but not necessarily sequential chapters. Um, that were quite brief, almost acting as overviews. And Mm. um, I hadn't thought about her for 10 or or 15 years, but just recently I thought about her chapter structure structure, and was trying to look at that. Um, I think, and you correct me because you probably have more experience than I do, but I think most writers have, um, and I use this term judiciously and somewhat metaphorically, um, Bibles. So if if I am looking for the energy to start something or if I found that I've lost my way desperately in a story, um, I normally turn to James Salter and his short work. Mm. I don't know if you're familiar with him. He died recently. Um, Mm -mm. A rare stylist, I think, his short work is particularly great in terms of language. Um, so I reread the same short stories over and over and over and trying to get a, a sense of how he gets at a particular description or gets at a particular yeah. character.
0: Hmm. Interesting. What'd you think of Donna Tartt's A Secret History? I read that many years ago, but I'd be curious.
2: Um, well, first of all, I finished it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> They're all long. <laughs> right.
2: Um, <laughs> No, I, I I will say quite honestly, um, I very much enjoyed the the young characters. Uh, in some respects, there was a kind of resonance with Tom Brown's School Days, uh, the privileged English elite, uh, mm-hmm. you know, sort of at rest, as it were. I I did feel, and and I don't know if anyone else would agree, but I felt the character. I believe her name was Cecilia. The only the the single female character in the book.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh was much underdeveloped. And mm. sadly underdeveloped. I th- uh she she was actually what kept me reading the book after mm-hmm. I began to lose interest with the boys. Yes, right. Uh and yet I didn't feel a, Have you, have you read that the Yes. Oh, okay. So, so my opinion is the interesting book. I like the language. I like the the characters and the story, um, but I thought Cecilia could have played a bigger role, and I wish she had.
0: Yeah, just curious. We should maybe think about doing book reviews on here every now and then. That's idea. <laughs> have an author do a book review. So that's a dangerous
2: Great. art. Dangerous art. I know it is. That's <laughs> yeah, true. Could
0: could very well be. <laughs> well. Um, Peter, it's been great having you on. We are already up here close to um, 30 minutes or so. Melissa, do you have a question you want to ask before we start wrapping up?
1: Well, I was, I was curious about your readership. Like when you start a piece, when you finish a piece rather, who's your first reader?
2: My first reader is, is usually my wife. Um, and she, she gives me the truest sounding of a piece. Nice. Uh, her response often is, who is your reader? You know, what is your readership? <laughs> and I have no response. <laughs> um, after my wife, um, I work uh, biweekly with the Corrales writing group, um, a group of, I think we're at six or seven members who are far more published than I am and so on. So that uh, we do uh, group critiques. Um, nice. uh, that's very very helpful because i've discovered particularly with the corrales group i've discovered that my understanding of and use of commas uh, leaves much to be desired
0: <laughs> <laughs> you and the rest of the world <laughs> <laughs> well okay we have you know we're coming up on time um usually we ask our interviewees to um give us a little tidbit of about writing so a uh, help for writers that are struggling or some resources that you use and really enjoy or whatever you think would be helpful?
2: Sure. That uh, First of all, I would, um, my disclaimer is that I wouldn't presume to give advice to anyone, but certainly <laughs> over the years uh, I benefited from uh, the advice of a lot of good teachers. So one piece of advice, advice would be seek out quality teachers and listen to them.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: For writers, read read, read, mm-hmm. that would be a, that piece of advice. And then for, for, I think, anybody engaged in the rather soul scouring and frightening activity of creation, I guess um, I would say don't be afraid. Don't be afraid to be weird.
0: That's great. Mm-hmm. And,
2: and you've tapped me out there. <laughs> yeah. that's, that's terrific. a good ending that's terrific.
0: Yeah. yeah i think we can wrap it up with that well thanks for being on the show thanks for submitting the story really enjoyed reading it and by the time this podcast airs listeners will have heard it but we haven't heard from the it yet so i'm excited about it, listening to her version of it
2: <laughs> i share your excitement and thank you both it was a great pleasure to meet you and work with you and i and i especially want to thank both of you for your patience
0: Oh. <laughs> you're very welcome <laughs> well,
2: thank you very much it's a
1: fun story as we've said and I'm very much looking forward to reading it I am eager to hear any
2: what you read
0: <laughs> thanks Peter thank you very much for listening we hope you enjoyed the show if so please help us spread the word by telling your friends or giving us a rating and review on your favorite podcast app those reviews really make a difference We'd like to thank the folks at Literature & Latte, the makers of Scrivener, for sponsoring the podcast and providing an amazing tool for writers. If you'd like to take your writing to the next level and use a tool designed for writers by writers, then give Scrivener a try. What have you got to lose? The Story Discovery Podcast is a free, narrated podcast of the works that appear in Etched Onyx magazine. Edited by J.W. McAteer. All stories and poems are available for free at onyxpublications.com. That's O-N-Y-X publications.com. If you'd like to support the continuation of this podcast and or the magazine, please consider a small donation through Patreon at patreon.com onyxpublications. As a nano-publishing house, we are always looking for new works to showcase. If you'd like to submit a story or poem for consideration, please visit the submissions page on our website. In the meantime, keep reading and writing.